Persistence is something we need in life if we want to get things done, right from the mundane things we do every day on to the great adventures we plan. And some of us plan greater adventures than others. And in that, I think you'll see an increase in persistence and an increased dedication to persistence. On this show, I want you to listen for persistence. I want you to hear it in his voice. I want you to hear it in his words. Simon Pavey here calling to you from uh, sunny Wales and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, we got a good one for you today. We're going to talk with Simon Pavey from the UK. And of course, you know Simon Pavey already, but you definitely know him from Long Way Round with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. Uh, This guy's not only famous in the movies, he's also famous for running the Dakar probably too many times. Well, I'm speaking with Simon Pavey who until now has already entered seven Dakar races, finishing in five of those, which is incredible. He's the head of the de facto off-road rider training facility, which is the BMW Motorrad Off-Road Skills in the UK. He's been a contributor to many motorcycle magazines, and most recently I think it's uh, Brake Magazine, which he is an official tester for. He's been a contributor to um, some books on riding skills. And on top of all that, Simon's been in numerous films, including Everyone Knows, Long Way Round with Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor, Long Way Down, uh, Race to Dakar with Borman, By Any Means, again with Borman, and uh, Right to the Edge with Charlie Borman. Simon, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Uh, nice one. Thanks, Jim. That's a long-winded intro there. Fantastic. I love it. <laughs> well, you've uh, you've got a lot there. Um, I assume you're at work right now. Yes. Yep. Yep. Busy doing all the uh, all the uh, boring bits that don't involve riding motorbikes. Unfortunately, <laughs> fixing websites and uh, answering emails and all that stuff that sadly still has to be done in everybody's life. All the background stuff that takes something that you really love and makes it a little bit mundane, doesn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But you know the the. We, we're kind of pretty lucky, really. We've got a nice little business. It's just, uh, you know, my, myself and my wife, Lindley, it's our own small business. And, uh, you know, it's doing stuff that we believe in and we're passionate about. But it's like every other business. So the end product is a really enjoyable product. It's not, uh, it's not selling, uh, you know, s- selling something we're not interested in. It's, uh, you know, it's sort of selling the dream, I guess. Um, but, yeah, like every, every small business, you still have to answer to the tax man and, pay bills and all that uh yeah like you say the mundane bit as well but it's um yeah it's still good fun because as i say the, the end product is really enjoyable I know when I look at you, I think you, you've had just such an amazing life so far. I mean, you uh, grew up in Australia, I understand, riding bikes to your heart's content. And then just at the point when everyone else was told to grow up and get a job, uh, you managed to stick around and ride some more. How did you pull that off? Yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right. And I like the bit where you said so far as well. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I have to pinch myself some days. There's no question about it. And, and, and a little bit. I, I I did leave. Uh, you know, I, I finished high school like, uh, like uh, like you say, like sort of normal person, and and um, 
went and did the whole kind of traineeship and university and all that. But uh, all throughout that period, you know, my passion was always the the bike riding, and I kind of stuck with that. And I was always more focused on that than I was in uh, doing the stuff that I suppose inverted commas I should have been doing and and you know fortunately I've I sort of stuck at that and worked hard enough at that that um that's what I've ended up being able to make a, li- a living out of but you know it it did take a long time to get to this point I definitely spent a lot of years with uh with no money scrounging around riding you know knackered old worn out bikes and and doing rubbish jobs along the way to 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 try and get there you know it's not definitely something that didn't happen in in five minutes but it was kind of uh yeah just sort of always following after that's what i wanted more than the other things really um and and you you know dakar taught me a lot about that you know really that you sort of need to focus on that one thing above all else and you know when you're doing that you can't just ignore the day to day the same as like with like i said with this small business you know you the, the the end product is the really fun and exciting bit, but you only get to that bit when you put all the other little building blocks in place. And I suppose you don't know you're doing that when you're 20. But um, yeah, that's really what happened for me. Really, I just stuck at the stuck at the riding and the dream of kind of going rally racing in amongst doing all the yeah all the normal working in a petrol station on the midnight shift and those other things just to have enough money to go racing the next weekend you know that's it's always what it was about for me was just getting enough money together that week to race the next weekend and uh yeah eventually that turned into a uh, something else which is yeah i definitely pinched myself you know no, no question you know the whole dakar racing and running the off-road school and every everything i've worked for has you know for sure come together and luckily, I've you know I've got a fantastic wife that's you know we've been together 25 years now, and she's sort of believed in that dream all the way along and helped me and supported me with that as well. And you know now, now the fantastic thing is as as you've already said is kind of my son being interested as well. It's it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, to me when I when I look at what you've got there for a life, it's just it's the perfect life. You couldn't ask for any more. It's it's great. You mentioned about you working at it and not knowing really that you're working towards it. And is it a matter of that you've maybe stuck at something longer than what anyone else would have stuck at it? Like you kept doing it because you had this passion for racing. It's not necessarily the and and I'm assuming this and you need to correct me on this or at least paint the picture better for me. It's not so much that you had that goal in mind and that you headed for it. You just just stuck at the thing that you wanted until you found a way to make it work is that it yeah pr- pretty much that's yeah i'd say that's pretty true really and and you know i definitely always enjoyed you know i always enjoyed sort of sharing what knowledge i had with other people like like even when i was back in oz growing up and and sort of started to do all right in a few races and i was involved in a motorcycle park there and started doing training schools you know that was sort of back when i was 18 really and, and I've always really enjoyed that side of it. And so, you know, we're really passionate about the way we teach and, and the style in which we teach. And, and you know, I think that's what's made a real success of the off-road school. And, and you know, that's been every bit as important to me as actually going out and racing for myself is, you know, having that opportunity and all the great stories we have. You know, the famous one is obviously with Charlie, but, um, you know, we, we've kind of got these great stories flowing through our lives week in week out of people that have, have you know been come to the off-road school and become inspired and gone off and had their own adventures and their own trips and you know that that's 
that's uh, that's what myself and Lindley are sort of most proud of, really, and and we love being part of. And you know, in some ways, that's I guess been more important to us and uh than 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 racing actually you know the racing's a very it's sort of the completely the opposite thing when you go racing because it's it's an entirely selfish um pastime and when you go motorcycle racing it's it's all about everybody working for you you know and it's all about you uh so you know that the, the school creates a beautiful counterpoint to that because it just turns all that on its head and it you know, for, for all the support that you've had through your racing, you're able to kind of give that back, really, and give that back to real people. And we, we just, even last week, we had a beautiful story of a, a couple of ladies that came and did our off-road school in Australia last year. It was pretty much their first time off-road, and uh, and they've just finished a London to Magadan trip this week. And, you know, in 12 months, they've gone from virtually never been off-road to, you know, riding around the world, really. And yeah, those stories are what you know what makes it, what really, really makes it. I think, and as I say, that's something that we've always kind of wanted to be part of and believed in, and um, always sort of dabbled with. Uh, but then, when the opportunity came along to sort of do it with a manufacturer with BMW, that you know that was what allowed it to amp up from just sort of me in a field with a with a few friends to something that we could turn into a proper business. When you um, talk about, you know, when you were younger, riding and saving your money to go to the next race, I mean, that's that's passion. And you say it yourself, you, know, you use the word passion. That's got to be a lot of what it takes to go and race in the Dakar. I mean, the Dakar is, you know, arguably the, the toughest race in the world. To race the Dakar, you've got to have, I mean, you've got to have a lot of things, I'm sure. But, but passion has to be right there. Wouldn't that have to be your most basic foundation for getting into that race? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, you can't, you know, you can't go to that event unless you're, you know, a hundred and fifty percent committed because everything about it's absolutely. You know, I've done a lot of racing all over the world in a lot of different disciplines, uh, all off road, of course, but a lot of you know all the sort of different off road disciplines and and uh, you know Dakar really is genuinely by far and away the most difficult of all the events and and especially just because of the you know the, the fourteen, fifteen, eighteen days, whatever it is each year. Um, you know that that's what mentally takes you down, and and you're absolutely right. You know you've got to first of all to get to the start line is by far the hardest part. It's even harder than the event. You know getting getting everything together for a project to go to Dakar, the the, the sort of sponsorship, the media, the press that you need to have the sponsors, and and then you know preparing a bike and training. You know realistically, it's a full time job, but not many of us are in the position where we can make that. Our job, so you know, it's the same for me. I've got, you know, I've got a, a business that pays for pays my rent each week and all that sort of stuff. And so you still need to be doing that and doing that, you know, whatever to the best of your ability. But at the same time, you've got to be kind of creating this project. So unless you're, you know, unless you're, as you say, sort of 100% passionate and 100% focused on making Dakar happen, it never will. And and also then once you get to the start line, like I've seen it quite a few times, unless you're really, really focused that that finish line is more important than anything else in your life, and that's where I say it becomes quite a selfish process that, you, you, you know, you won't make the finish. And actually with Dakar, you know, with other races, not so much, but with Dakar, if you're not 110% there or, you know, you're not 100% in, in the place of, Dakar, you know, the finish line of Dakar is the most important thing in the world, 
um, it becomes a dangerous place because it is a dangerous race. And, you know, we never like to talk about that, but having been there quite a few times now, I have to accept it. And, it, you know, it's especially dangerous if you're not 100% focused for that two, two and a half weeks. As soon as you take your mind off the ball, then that's when people, you know, get themselves hurt, unfortunately. It's... um. Yeah, so the the whole kind of passion and belief and the dream and all whatever you want to call it, that's there's no question. And I, but you know, I think I think it's really true of whatever you do in life. You know, that Dakar is a nice little microcosm. It compresses everything down into two weeks. But you know, you get you get what you, uh, you get what you sow a little bit in life. I think, and the more you put in, the more you get out. With a lot of things, isn't it? Whether it's just being fit or job career work life you know it's the more you put in the more you'll get out i think it's really a, a truism i think that's what life is about i think we all need to have something that we're passionate about and even if you don't make it your vocation even if it's just something you do on the weekends i think having something that is your passion something you're excited about something that you you do just for yourself that's fulfillment uh, yeah. that's the only thing that you get out of life yeah, no, it really is. I agree, hundred percent. And and you're right. You know, whether it's you, some sometimes it's actually better when it's not your vocation. You know, when you're just really passionate about something and you you do your job well, but you're also happy to go out and kind of play hard on the weekends and and in the evenings. It's yeah, it's really really valuable and important, and yeah, makes everyone happier and healthier. And it may, you know, it makes people around you happier if you're happy, doesn't it? <laughs> it's nothing worse than hanging out with someone that's uh, down on life. <laughs> That's a perfect point. I mean, you can really pick up on that when you, you talk to some people at their jobs that they can't stand it. And um, it's refreshing to get somebody who uh, who really loves what they do. I honestly think that if you don't love what you do, you've got to stop doing it and move on. Forget about the social status quo that everyone thinks that you're supposed to have this and have that and be doing this and doing that. I say move on, find a passion, You know, find something you can feel good about. Yeah, remember why you got into it in the first place and try and bring that back, you know, because I think that happens a lot as well where, you know, we whatever you do, I, I get it here. Like you say, I have got a fantastic job and a fantastic life, but I still get it where you come in sometimes and you go, really? And then you have to sort of step back and go, hang on a sec. Um, and, and I think that happens to everyone when you do, you know, when you follow your sort of career path or your, your, your job and you kind of get to a point where you, you are, yeah, you sort of forget what excited you about that business or that industry in the first place and sometimes you have to yeah you have to step out step back a little bit don't you and go actually I do really like doing this and I'm going to make it enjoyable again so do you ride every day for work and for pleasure or do you, is your time too cramped for that yeah I'm I'm pretty crowded with that I mean I try and I try and uh you know if I can't ride my motorbike I'll try and cycle uh, most days I quite like swimming a little bit as well so I'm you know, trying to do something all the time but yeah like everyone you know you sometimes you get to six o'clock in the evening you've been sat in the office all day and you're like you know can't be bothered to go and do what you should do and then as soon as you make the decision to do it you really really enjoy it and especially you know where I live sometimes the weather's not so great and it's hard to be motivated to get out when it's uh when it's cold and raining outside but again as soon as you do you actually enjoy it and you have to sort of always remind yourself that that to, to step out and do it but yeah I mean I'd love to ride a motorbike every day there's no question and I think I get to ride more than most people do but um, but if I can't ride the motorbike you know we I live in a beautiful part of the world for mountain biking as well and road cycling and I'm into both of those so it's I'm definitely happier if it's got wheels I don't like going running and gyms and stuff like that and I'd rather be out um, falling off a mountain in the rain than being in a gym 
Which brings me to another question, because I, I read that you were into mountain biking. Is there a crossover between mountain biking and motorcycling? Yeah, for sure. It's it's I, I think, you know, for, for off-road, it's the closest thing um, in terms of sort of physical effort. And, um, you know, I think the mountain biking is really good for your precision on the motorbike because, you know, with the wheels being a little bit smaller and trails are usually tight, I think you have to be accurate all the time on a mountain bike. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's good for that. And, uh, and it's sort of got the same physical effort in the way that you you know it's quite explosive like it is riding a dirt bike where you know you get bits where it's fairly flowing and fairly easy and then you get bits where you have to be quite explosive to you know get up that short hill or or you know a section of trail where you just need to put that effort in so i think it's quite similar like that Uh, but if you look at a lot of the the top you know top motocrosses and enduro riders and desert like all the pro guys you know they're all really massively into their road cycling as well uh and, and i haven't been i used to be when i was younger and i sort of didn't until beginning of last year and then my son Llewellyn got a road bike and so i got one as well and and you can see why those pro guys are into their cycling because it, it, with the road cycling it's a lot lot more a sort of constant effort and it's really hard on your quads which again when you ride off road is sort of the probably your most important muscle group is your, your legs you know as soon as you can stay standing on the foot pegs for a long period of time you stay in control when you get tired and you get lazy and start sitting down um you, you know you're losing control so yeah i mean i think they're, they're great great disciplines and great crossovers for sure I mean, I prefer the mountain biking a lot more because it's more interesting, <laughs> but I do enjoy both. Your day-to-day job is running the uh, BMW off-road skills training facility. What's that like? What's a day in the life like for you? Yeah, my, my well, uh, probably today's a great example, actually. I've also got, <laughs> for my for my sins, I've also got a little um, B&B guest house <laughs> up the road. So, um, uh, and usually I've got a guy that comes in and cooks breakfast and stuff, but it was Monday today and, and um, we don't normally have people check in on a Monday night, but someone had booked online and I'd totally forgotten about it. So, so this morning I got up at, uh, got up at 6.30 and went and uh, cooked breakfast at my B&B, <laughs> my guests. <laughs> That'll surprise a few people. And then uh, cleaned the kitchen and uh, so then, yeah, got down to work at 9 o'clock and, you know, I've just been today in the office all day and um just yeah answering emails and doing some work we've got we run some uh tours as well so just sort of doing some work on our next tour booking booking hotels and booking flights and um a bit of bookkeeping and uh yeah every every now and then I go and uh, go and walk out to the workshop so I can at least touch a bike and talk to the guy Evan that works for me out there working on bikes cuz I'd definitely rather be doing his bit than my bit but um yeah, this is my bit. It says, "Say it's my mine and my wife's business." So, yeah, we do we do all that kind of yeah boring sort of basic uh, running of a small business really, and then uh, and that will happen you know Monday to Thursday this week, and then come Friday morning we've got a two day adventure ride here in Wales uh, which we call Brecon Beacons Adventure. So we'll do that for two days, and uh, and then we've got a two day off road school Sunday Monday which is level ones, two and three. Uh, so yeah, we'll have sort of four days out on the bikes and, um, and then yeah, following Monday back into, back into the office and yeah, clearing up the paperwork from the weekend and sort of getting everything ready to start the next set of off-road schools, 
eight days later. So it, it, it's sort of, you know, it has become a seven-day-a-week job, really, but obviously seven days a week, you know, doing stuff that I'm into. And then, and then right at the moment as well, I have to admit that uh, I've spent a little bit of time working on Dakar 2015 as well because that, that's a massive project for us at the moment that myself and my son Llewellyn have both got entries into Dakar next year, which is, again, really, really long story, but it's taken us three, three and a half years to, to get to the point where uh, the organisers will accept us both going. Um, you know, Dakar's not like it was 10 years ago these days. To get an entry is is actually you have to sort of um, apply now. And uh, so, yeah, we've both had our entries accepted. So we're just sort of, you know, really belatedly working on a project to, to go to Dakar for next year. So we, we realistically sort of got six weeks to try and raise the, the sponsorship and the money and... Uh, and prepare bikes and all that stuff I talked about. So it's a little bit crazy, actually, <laughs> but exciting at the same time. I want to talk to you about the Dakar entry. But first, I mean, I'm talking with probably the most famous off-road motorcycle trainer in the world. And he tells me that he starts his day by going and cooking somebody's <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> and then he, and then, then he goes to the office and he sits behind the computer and longly goes out to stroke a motorcycle and get a sniff of some oil and fuel and goes back. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the real, that's the real world. <laughs> yeah. There's days, like you say, it's absolutely brilliant. Love it. And there's days when you have to just do all the, yeah, you have to do all the stuff to make the other fun stuff happen. I think yeah, uh, I, I can't stand brushing my teeth for one. But, I mean, it drives me. It seems like a total waste of time, but yeah, I got to do it. But it's better than going to the dentist every six months. <laughs> it's kind of the key. It's exactly the point. Yeah. Uh, one of my other instructors, she's really, really fantastic lady. Uh, and um, yeah, she, she's, she's sort of uh, that, as I say, she works for us uh, kind of every other weekend and she lives here in Wales as well. And she, she's got her life pretty sorted, but she has the reverse commute because her no, normal job is a dental hygienist in London. So we have that same conversation <laughs> you've just said many, many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the off-road skills training for just a minute here. I'm curious, what makes it unique? I, I know you have a very unique program, very well-respected program. Um, what is it that makes it so unique in rider training? Yeah, for, for me, I think, again, it comes back to the passion. You know, we're really passionate about what we teach. We're really passionate about the way we teach and, and how we deliver it. Uh, my, my wife's background is that she was a, a secondary teacher, secondary high school teacher. I don't know what you guys call that in America, but the sort of uh, the, the 12 to, you know, the teenage years, 12 to 18, she was a teacher in Australia. And, um, you know, so a lot, a lot of our sort of principles of how we teach have come from her uh, skill set as well and you know we put uh, we put a lot of time into our instructors as well we you know we're quite clear that to become an instructor here of course you have to have a, a, a pedigree in uh, off-road motorcycling and and racing at a high level um, but you know that's that's the smaller criteria really we're always focused on people that have got some sort of a teaching or instructional background in another world, you know, who's not outside of motorcycling, so places where they actually teach people to teach. And uh, and then, you know, we 
we uh, run our own in-house instructor training program so that we're you know we're quite um, clear on yeah how we deliver the message and the style we deliver in and I, and I, I believe you know we've been going 15 years now and I believe that we're also all, always trying to improve and evolve that that program and you know we try very hard to encompass all you know all ability levels and all aptitudes and, and entry points into into motorcycling whether you've you know whether you've been on a motorcycle for one day in your life or you've been riding for 15 years you know we we want to be able to offer something to all those you know that that whole breadth of ability level really and uh, you know, we, it is very easy. I've seen it with other schools to teach the sort of middle, let's say, seventy percent. You know, the people that you can just have a good curriculum and you hand the curriculum out and they'll get it. You know, the, the skilling being a good instructor or a good trainer is to be able to cater for the, the sort of fifteen percent on either end, the fifteen percent that need things delivered in a little bit of a different way and they haven't quite got the first message, the sort of standard curriculum and. And you know, equally on the, the sort of top end as well. Top end's the wrong word, but you know, on either end of the of the spectrum to to be able to deal with that. And 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 actually, you know, the, the sort of size of the school helps with that a little bit because we're dealing with thirty, thirty five students at a time, and we can have five or six instructors here. We've got real flexibility to be able to to put people in the right groups and in the right. Uh, you know, with the right instructor for what they need, and as I say, we yeah, that, I think that's been the success of our growth, and and you know, hopefully the customers. It's always in any business, it's the customers that tell you if you're doing a good job or not, and you know, we we have a lot of customers that've been back time and time again, and we've now now you know we genuinely have customers come to us from all over the world, you know, from the US, from Canada, from Australia, from Southeast Asia. South America, uh, of course, you know, 85% of our customers are from from here in the UK or, or quite nearby. But, you know, we really have got customers from all over now. And I think, you know, I believe that, yeah, that's because we're, we're doing things well. <laughs> what's the first thing you do with them, um, with the class when they come in, you know, on sort of day one? What's the first thing you cover? Yeah, when, when we when we if we start talking about level one, which is absolutely the bread and butter and where it all all begins for you know most people, then then uh, you have to take things back to basics. And like with all skill sets, the 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 key in being able to improve whatever your level at is being really 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 good at the basics. So we we always spend the first morning focusing on real core skills and hey, look, we start you know we start with. Uh, Let's lie the bike down on the ground and work out how to pick it up, you know. And and then we do some real basic bike handling stuff without even riding the bike, you know, just handling the bike, understand especially with an adventure bike, you know, understanding the weight of the bike when it's working for you, when it's working against you. And um, it also gives you a little bit of time to kind of break the ice with people, calm the nerves down. You know, everyone's nervous in the morning. They don't know what's coming for one and, you know, two, there's all that sort of anticipation. And, and the internet's a wonderful place these days, isn't it? But it's also a terrifying place. <laughs> and there's plenty of fishing stories on the, the internet about how big the hills are going to be and how scary it's going to be and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So you know, just gives us that little time period to, to calm the nerves and to, as I say, yeah, real basic core bike handling skills. And then once we are on the bikes, we talk about, you know, good riding position and um, good balance and feeling on the foot pegs and 
then we you know work on throttle control and then work on clutch control and then work on finesse on the brakes and all those things you're sort of feeling on the foot pegs and your use of the controls when I talk about controls throttle clutch brakes foot pegs those those items the better you get with all those the easier the technical you know the more technical sort of skill sets become and so it's always our focus really is to get the basics right first you know great when you've got someone that's actually never done anything before sometimes when people have done something before there's some bad habits that you have to unravel first um which we've all got no matter how long we've been riding i know i've still got plenty of them i'm often shouting at myself inside my helmet (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah yeah, and, that, and that's the beginning, really. And then, you know, once you've got some basics going, then we can start to play a little bit more and we can go and explore the park. I think another, you know, another great asset we've got here with the off-road school here. And, you know, in the last 10 years, we've sort of taken the off-road school to other places as well, like taking our skills to other venues. We've done schools in Canada and Australia and Thailand, Um few that just leak to mind but we've got a great asset here in Ireland a great asset here where we are in South Wales is we've got this fantastic venue which is it's uh it was the largest open cast coal mine in Europe and it's all been re-landscaped now and it's back to forestry uh it's got a bit of a wind farm on it but it's it's 4,000 acres totally private land and you know, it's got every degree of difficulty there We, we start out on a you know totally big flat good dirt surface and then uh by the end of the two days there's you know uphills and downhills as steep as uh as you like and you know real technical trails single tracks and big wide dirt roads we've just got such a brilliant variety i, I mean it's, it's such a it's really really hard to explain until you've been there you know I'm sure hopefully you've got some listeners that have seen it it's it's incredible i've been riding around it for 15 16 years now and it's still a joy to go and ride in that in my in my little backyard up there and and um yeah find new little trails and new little ways every week brilliant just fantastic bit of ground and 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 you know it just adds to the whole training thing that we've got here just just brilliant you couldn't have sort of built a better training venue if you started with a digger and a blank sheet of paper that says something if you're writing it that long you're still finding it exciting yeah. uh, i recently interviewed uh, lisa morris who took your course and she said that almost you know right away or very quickly you guys had her riding a, a 1200 gs off-road until she was comfortable with it and that you debunked the theory that one has to touch the ground flat-footed on both feet to effectively ride the machine because she's uh, quite short and uh, i believe the bike that she ended up taking on her trip was she was at a lowered uh, factory lowered uh, f650 but i have two questions for you in that and one is how big do you need to be compared to your motorcycle and two is how big should your motorcycle be for adventure use <laughs> trick questions the first, first <laughs> the first one's not so trick the first one's easy hey you you know, you know the size of the bike is is totally irrelevant. You don't need strength to ride a motorcycle. You you need those things I've already talked about. You need a little bit of understanding of how the bike works and uh, and confidence. You know, and they come hand in hand with with time. You know, and and uh, of course the instruction can shortcut some of that time, but you still can't beat time on, on a bike. And and the whole point about yeah, as soon as you sit in the middle of the bike and try and be tippy toes either side any bike will be too tall for most people you know there's no doubt about that you know we're 
real advocates of being comfortable with the balance of the bike and getting your bum off the seat and getting one foot down well and truly, you know, properly planted on the ground, not a, you know, as soon as you tippy toe with a foot either side, the bike and the conditions are deciding which way your balance goes. Whereas by being deliberate about where your balance goes and making sure one foot's properly down, you know, you, you've made the decision about how the bike's balanced and it, it's so important. And I know when people are, you know, haven't gained confidence in that yet, it's a very easy thing for me to stand here and say, but it, it, it really is one of those things where, trust me, it's worth developing that that skill alone. And you know, the best example is Jenny that I was talking about that's an, an instructor for us now. She actually hasn't been riding off-road that long. She's not like myself, but, you know, been riding off-road all my life kind of thing. Um, but, you know, she's worked really, really hard to get to a level. And, you know, she she's five foot two. She's a petite girl. And she's one of our instructors and she rides a, a GSA all the time, you know, the new water cooled GSA, no problem. Um, but she just has to, you know, be conscious of where she's going to stop all the time and she's very deliberate about how she gets on and off and where she gets on and off. And again, even just like go back to picking the bike up and it's great when she's here instructing because you've got plenty of burly blokes around that go and you can't pick an adventure up and she's 5'2 and she comes along with a full tank of gas and picks the bike up because she's learned the technique, you know, she's learned how to do it. And, and yes, it's still a big, heavy bike, but, you know, there's a lot of leverage to be had with that bike. And, yeah, if you're patient and you learn some techniques, you can do it. You, you know, it's, you don't need to be tall to, to ride a tall bike. You just need a little, like I say, a bit of understanding. And then the second part, the second question is more difficult because I think that's a real – you know, a real personal choice with an adventure bike as to what size adventure bike you ride. Um, you, you know, it really depends on, I think, what you enjoy out of your riding and where you want to go. And, you know, a great example is with Long Way Around with, with Charlie and Ewan on their, on their 1150s. And I know there's always criticism, oh, they took the wrong bikes, they took too big a bikes and all that sort of stuff. But if you talk to Charlie and if you actually think about where they went, you know, for the TV show, the great, exciting, dramatic stuff that they showed on the TV show was all the difficult bits where they were struggling. But in the grand scheme of that trip, they did thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, um, you know, on good tarmac roads at 80 miles an hour. And then, you know, for the little bit of suffering where the bike was too big or, you know, was more of a handful in, in the off-road bits, as against you know the other way around you can you can take a bike that's small and light and easy when you're in those difficult bits but maybe it's quite tedious when you're sat on a highway for 4000 miles so it's just all about deciding you know what your trip's going to be what you what you know what do you do the most of in your riding as to what bike's going to be the most enjoyable for you and i i think you know for me that's the, the key point is you Pick a bike that you enjoy and ride and enjoy riding and like riding. Um, you know, that's always why we do it. So, yeah. The best solution is to have a load in your garage like I've got. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> so you just so, choose whatever you want for the day. Yeah, I've got my 302 stroke and I've got my 454 stroke and I've got a GSA and uh, just I just I had an HP2 which I've just sold and I can always borrow one of the off-road school 800s, so I've kind of got everything there. <laughs> but, um, the official answer then is just have a whole bunch of bikes. Yeah, 
Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that like you say, we like to get everyone riding the 1200GS, especially with the new water-cooled 1200GS. Since we've had that on the off-road school here, it really, really is genuinely a fantastic bike that has such a wide appeal. It's um, it's a great bike for us teaching-wise. And, and honestly, three years ago, I would have never thought I'd be the person saying this, but all the electronic aids that it's got now with the ABS and the traction control, um, so fantastic. They really, really do stop people having accidents on road and off road. Really brilliant, and just makes it easier to teach because you're always working on someone's confidence rather than their mistakes. You know, and not having to pick them up off the ground because they made a mistake. You can sort of see they've made a mistake, and they know they've made a mistake because the lever's been you know, vibrating in their hands. But then you can sort of go back and go, okay, let's do it a little bit better and you know, work on skill sets all the time. It's just such an easy bike to ride and so forgiving. And, you know, when you sort of sit there and see it on the showroom floor, it does look like a big bike, but as soon as you're on it and riding and moving away, it's a really, really easy bike to handle. It's it's um, it's been brilliant for us in the last two years. You know, as, as I say, I was always the one that said, don't need any of that electronic rubbish, turn it all off, get rid of that. Um, but they... You know, the, the modern, the latest generation, they've totally changed that. It's really fantastic. There's the ad over. <laughs> I, I, I read uh, what you wrote there, and I think it was Break Magazine, your um, article, and you were saying about it being a trade-off. I mean, really, when you're looking at a bike, um, there's always a trade-off. There's the two ends of the spectrum, the street, the comfort and the highway or the fast riding, and then there's the off-road sections, and it's where you want to slide that scale to make your choice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, you know, that does change a little bit with your, you know, with your riding ability because obviously for, for myself and Llewellyn, for example, and, you know, some of the other guys that work here, you know, we, we can take those big bikes into places where, you know, a lot of people wouldn't take a proper enduro bike. So it does depend a little bit on where you, you know, where, where your level is um, as to what bike's going to be most enjoyable for you. You know, I wouldn't hesitate to take a, a GSA on a trip around the world because I'd be confident that sort of no matter what comes up, I'm going to be able to, to manage it, you know. But, it, yeah, again, it depends a little bit what, what your level is really. And I wouldn't want to take a sort of small bike because I'd do my head in to be having to sit on all the long sections uncomfortably. But, you know, that that can completely change around depending how long you spend as we as we've already said, how long you're intending to spend doing the adventurous bits, and that that's the only thing I'd say to anyone is you know you you want to try and do more and more of those adventurous bits because that's the whole point of going, isn't it? Is to go to the places that maybe you wouldn't normally go to in your normal life. You want to you want to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. What are the top skills or exercises that a rider should practice to improve their off-road riding? Throttle and clutch control, critical. Most the biggest, most important thing though is vision, and and you know that applies on road or off road. Just teaching yourself to to look that little bit further ahead, and I, and I think it's something you have to constantly work on, no matter how good you get. And and you have to be kind to yourself and do it in bite sized chunks. You know, if you start talking about currently, I look, you know, this far ahead. Now I'm always going to look that far ahead it doesn't work you've just got to try and lift your vision a little bit further all the time and just 
grow your confidence to not worry about the detail under your front wheel, but to look at the bigger picture a bit more. And and also, again, on an adventure ride, it makes the whole thing more enjoyable because you start looking at the countryside and the scenery rather than uh, rather than the stone that's about to pass under your front wheel. <laughs> um, yeah, the vision is just really, really, it's that old adage with, I think, most outdoor sports is you, you, you really do go where you look. So as soon as you focus on the thing that you don't want to go to, you go there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's something we all, you know, I still have to work on it for sure all the time. You know, if you've got if you've got that sort of adventure style helmet, make sure the peak's tipped up nice and high. It's a really silly thing, but we see it all the time. People have their peak down low, and it stops you lifting your vision. Make sure it's up high and just yeah, looking ahead all the time. But yeah, then you know, the better you get with throttle and clutch control, um, all the controls really. Just learning to be as smooth and soft as you can be on all the controls and you know whether you're rolling the throttle on or rolling it off it's always smooth you know smooth on smooth off and the same with the clutch you know don't don't just disengage the clutch quickly it's always take the drive away smoothly put the drive back smoothly and yeah the same with the brakes you know pull the brakes on smoothly you let them off smoothly it's never they're not switches those controls they're all there to be used as smoothly as possible you can work, you know, you don't need to go off road to work, work on that stuff. I talk to students all the time, you know, you can practice that stuff in the supermarket car park on the weekend. And you might get some strange looks, but ride up and down some curbs and, you know, do tight turns, try and turn around in a car park space, you know, all, all that, all that sort of stuff. Doing that, like a classic thing, the U-turn, you know, being able to confidently do those nice tight turns, it's all about vision. It's all about turning your head, looking over your shoulder and being smooth on the controls. And then when you go off-road, that, that stuff, you know, is exactly what you need to be safe. The looking further ahead thing, that's something that really rings home for me. Coming from a background of driving um, four-wheel drives off-road a, a lot. And the first thing I noticed when I started to ride motorcycles was that I had to look so much further ahead because everything happened so much faster. I was used to looking very near to the truck, I mean, in comparison. But with the bike, I found that I had to look way ahead. But I had to choose my line, finish with it, program myself to run that line, and then already be on, you know, way down the trail. And, uh, and yeah. I found that quite nerve-wracking at first. Yeah, Dave, again, it's one of those things, isn't it? it? It takes time as well, but you've got to work on it also. You know, we like to, yeah, like with all things, when you practice them, you've got to practice the bits that maybe uh, we, we all like to practice what we can already do. If that makes sense. You've got to practice and work on the things that you find challenging, and that's definitely one of them. You've, you've got to. You've got to make yourself do it like exactly how you described it. You've got to you've got to be able to look at a piece of terrain, sort of process that and then accept that's going under your wheels and be looking at the next bit ahead. And it's the same when you ride on the road, isn't it? You want to always be looking as as far as you can. So you're always sort of chasing the opening, really. And um yeah, the same applies off road. You know, there's a lot more going on off road because you've got the detail of ter- terrain as well, but the sooner you can process that. You know, the further ahead you can make yourself comfortable to look, the less riding skill you need because you've got time to deal with it. It slows the whole world down. It's the same in, in uh, sports when you're talking about going back to your basics. I mean, they, they talk about that all the time. They take these athletes that are that are so highly trained and they make them do these most mundane things, you know, like, uh, that are so easy for them. But it's to build those skills so they're muscle memory and they're not something you need to cognitively process as you're going through your, your whatever it is you're doing. 
Yeah, totally. And and you know where that becomes really important is is when you're a little bit tired, because when you you know when you're fresh at the start of the day, you can you can process that stuff. But when you're tired, it needs to be automated. Otherwise, again, that's when you you know that's when you fall off and you hurt yourself. And you, you, you know, for me, adventure riding is about enjoying the ride and being safe. It's not about you know racing's for going fast. Adventure riding is about enjoying the big wide world. And you know, the, the safer you feel when you're doing that riding then the more you're going to enjoy the the world that you're in and the world you're trying to explore because you're going to have some brain power left to yeah to take that in what's your definition of adventure and is adversity distance and time required for an adventure no none of those things are required but i think i think the, the biggest problem with that word right at the moment is in the last uh let's say decade or this decade or whatever, it's uh, it's kind of a little bit overused, abused word now, isn't it? I think everything from a mm. from a perfume to a <laughs> to a toothpaste to a to a holiday is called an adventure these days. <laughs> it's um it's a bit battered really. Um but 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 for me, you know, I suppose I don't think you need any of those difficult elements for things to be an adventure. I, I like to think that, you know, Every trip I go on, or every time I go to do something, there's a little bit of adventure involved. You know, we we've just we've just been with myself and my son and a few friends to a to a, a small rally in Greece, and yeah, hey, we just went in a van, uh, road trip to, to to Greece, and you know we drove down there. Um, you know, nothing's going to go wrong. We're in Europe. There's help everywhere and and all that. You don't need that sort of element of risk. But we just had a great time. It was just a bunch of mates just went off on a trip and yeah we made our own adventure i guess but it was just traveling and having fun and seeing a bit of the world we haven't been to and meeting people we haven't met before and just kind of partaking in life really like you said right at the very very beginning just just yeah just partaking in life and yeah it's a it's it is a i think the point is is that that word has a different definition for everyone and it is yeah, for me, it's just get out there and enjoy it. Make the most of what we've got. We're all, again, little cliches that are overused these days, but we're all only here for so long, aren't we? And you never know how long that is and make the best of what opportunities you've got. I think every you know, we're all very, very lucky, every one of us that lives in the Western world, aren't we? We've all got opportunity in front of us to enjoy life. Um, yeah, getting very deep now. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's an area that I like actually. <laughs> I'm talking about life, I, I'm I'm always interested in what motivates people, you know, to do things, and especially people who have done um, many things and and really accomplished what they want to accomplish in life or, or heading in the right direction. That's what gets me down there. But let's talk about the Dakar, Simon. You've ran it, you've entered it seven times, you've finished actually, it, I think, five times. Sorry. Actually, actually, I've been nine and finished seven. <laughs> you've been nine times in it. Yeah. 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 So you've. So you've run it nine times, yeah. you've finished seven. It is, we talked about already, considered by most people the most dangerous race in the world. And after finishing seven, what makes you want to go again? What about this race is so addictive that has you now, like you said, applying? You're not even, you're not even paying your money and getting to go in. You're having to apply and beg for a spot. Please let me come in and spend my money. What is it about this? Yeah, don't don't put too many points on it, or I might have to. 
<laughs> go and sign myself into a ward somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they're all very good questions. Yeah, dead flat learning curve is maybe the answer to that. <laughs> short memory, memory, short term memory loss. I'm not sure. No, no, and and you know the real big thing for for me this time is and the exciting thing and the drive is. Um, but yeah, I guess you could argue I've sort of created that that every time. But it's it's to go with my son. You know, it's a fantastic opportunity. He's 23 now, and. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that's a really, really special thing to have a chance to do. So that that's definitely, you know, the the primary driving force this this time round is that, you know, we, we also we've tried for quite a few years to for us both to go together. You know, it was the plan in twenty since twenty twelve actually. But it's a it's a long story, but anyway, twenty twelve it, it we had a project that fell apart. Twenty thirteen the organizers wouldn't accept his entry. Um so yeah, now we're now we're to looking 2015 and we've had our entries accepted and that that's definitely you know the the big exciting motivation really to be on the start line together and hey hopefully you know hopefully on the finish podium together but absolutely to you know to be able to line up at the start together and 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 take on the challenge together is a massive thing you know and yeah that's that's definitely the the driving force this time around motivation no question about it and um Hopefully, yeah. He he now brings the the skill and the speed, and hopefully, I bring some experience to the party. So, we'll see. But there must be some stress with with running with your son. I mean, this is you know someone that um, you're going to have to be uh, very attentive to. I mean, this is a, this is not like well, it's just it's your it's your son. I mean, isn't that, that's got to cause some stress? Oh, and massively emotional. I mean, we had a, you know we had a tiny little taste of it at this rally. We went to Sarah's rally in Greece. Um, couple of weeks ago like I said and and um yeah I mean we went through a tiny tiny version of the emotions there I mean obviously it's, I mean, it hasn't got the quite the same danger potential as, as Dakar but every time you race a motorbike there's some danger and you, you know the, the first day watching he had a, uh, an earlier start than me on the prologue and you know watching him go off and he's big and strong and fast now and he went off the start line like throttle pinned wide open and I'm like yeah good lad and then I'm like but be careful you know (laughs) (laughs) and then of course I go to the start line like four or five minutes later and I'm like fuck he might beat me though I better better try hard so I've gone off the start line hanging (laughs) hanging it out a bit too much as well and I'm like the opposite way I'm like calm down tiger (laughs) you know how to do this (laughs) and then you know as the week went on we uh you know we we went through the whole thing because I I can't I think it's like then day he was he was fourth on the first day, I think, and yeah, so it must have been day three. Then he's broken down on the stage, and I've come around the corner and you know stopped with him broken down and sort of stopped for a little bit. Is there anything I can do to help? And he's like, no, no, you can't. You got to go. And you know, so then I've left him broken down on the side of the stage and don't know you know what's going on. And concentration goes for yourself because you're thinking more about what's happened, what's happened to him, and blah blah blah. But at least, you know, then I, I knew he was safe and everything. And um, and he had a torrid couple of days with sort of technical problems. And then we got the bike sorted for, I don't remember what day it was, but day five maybe. But And, and then the next day, so he started kind of last. And, um, you know, he won the stage, which was the first time he's ever won a stage overall. And he won the stage overall. And, uh, and uh, yeah, by by a good, you know, by three and a half minutes, because obviously he was riding on the pent up uh, anger of having uh, had a couple of really bad stages, and 
And uh, nice. so then, yeah, like, you know, I was properly, uh, probably a little bit tearful and proud to be honest with you. It was, it was really, really, really magical. And, and then, you know, then two days later we went back to him broken down on the side of the stage and I stopped and, you know, he was so angry and he was like, he's like, I, he wouldn't let me stop. He's like, no, you've got to go. Cause you know, in the overall I was doing pretty good. And yeah, so then sort of rode off again, nearly tears, but this time tears of sadness. I'm kind of tears of joy, tears of sadness. And I'm sure Dakar is going to make that look, uh, you know, those extremes are going to be massive because, yeah, all day we're going to be worried about each other, you know, and but equally trying to trying to be smart and ride smart all day and you won't know where each other is half the time and all those things. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be massive. Uh, emotional roller coaster but hopefully that's what's going to make it exciting and hopefully that's what we're going to be able to sort of you know tell a great story about i think you know when you when you when the years i haven't done dakar like like last year when you sat back here and you're one of the the fans and you're watching you know all day on the internet for two weeks in january and you don't do any other work because you just got one window on your computer looking at, at dakar websites <laughs> and forums and stuff trying to glean tiny little bits of information is you know that's really our plan is to to hopefully you know hopefully get as much of that information back as we can every day and you know have a great story for for people to be excited about and follow and yeah tell it tell it how it is for you know for for real people on Dakar for privateers because it's it's totally is two different races you know the factory guys those sort of top ten or twelve guys that proper factory riders and pro athletes and all they do do all year is train and practice and test and and all that stuff and after that you know the next hundred of us are, are, are just you know we are normal people with normal jobs that are answering the phones and emails most of the time and you know trying to do a little bit of training and trying to do a little bit of practicing but then you you go to Dakar and you're sort of pitched into a pro athlete situation and yeah, just sort of fighting for it every day. And it'd be great if we can, you know, tell as much of that story back while the event's on and before and afterwards. And that's, you know, that's definitely the goal. And, yeah, hopefully we do a good job of that. So, well, we will do a good job of that. To the layman, it seems a daunting task, to say the least, to attempt a race like this. Roughly, I mean, I know it's too big for us even to discuss here, but roughly, how do you go about planning this and what sort of money does it take to do it? Do you, do you know what? Like I said, this will be my tenth time. I'm still not quite sure about all of that. I'm still muddling through every year, <laughs> and it, it's like a lot of big projects. Um, you, you know, again, just like normal business life in a way. You you sort of have to have uh, you, you know have that end product as the goal, and then you have to kind of write down all the steps that you need to do and to get there, and you just have to put them in a list and and tick them off and sometimes like we we've had it in the last you know week where you think right this is how we're going to do it and you kind of put all the pieces in to make that happen and then for some reason either your mistake or something out of your control you know it doesn't go that way and then you have to cross that off and go okay we still haven't got a motorbike to ride how else can we get a motorbike to ride <laughs> you know <laughs> just sort of where we're at at the moment and um and then and then sometimes you know you've got your ideas oh, i think i'll get a sponsor this way and you you know, we've got our nice little sponsor presentation pack that we've produced and we've got our media plan that we've produced and, and all that. And you, you kind of put that out there in the places where you think it's the obvious place where it's going to work. And 
and that doesn't work. But, you know, from the side, someone else comes along and goes, oh, I really like that idea. What do I need to do to be involved? So I think, you you know, you've just got to, you've just got to, again, the end goal has got to be there. Um, and you've just got to keep chipping away at things. And, and sometimes you get up in the morning and you've been, you know, you've been knocked down half a dozen times a day before and you think, oh, it's really not going to work this time. And But you just got to keep chipping away at it and, and believe in the project a little bit. And, you know, it, it does come together, which is, like I say, I don't really quite know actually how to do it. I've done it nine times before and, you know, started again with a blank sheet of paper this year. In fact, it's a great example because when we went, last time 2013 we had some great sponsors lined up and it was actually a two-year deal to go um with uh, the team we had with Husqvarna as my team but you know Delta Kunststoffa Husqvarna it was called and then you know totally out of our control but BMW sells off the brand Husqvarna to KTM and and suddenly the two-year deal isn't worth the paper it's written on so the whole thing falls apart um and you have to you know go right we start all over again with a blank sheet of paper um, and, and you know that that's that's pretty much how I've done it every year, and and where we're at now is you know we it's not quite blank anymore. We've got a few ticks in the box. We've got you know a couple of great sponsors on board already. Um, Rentamoto is a, a company that rents um, BMWs out of Edinburgh in Scotland, and they're exactly involved for for the reason of actually talking to you. This uh, in uh, uh, international audience because they, you know, they're they're even though they're renting motorcycles in uh, Edinburgh in Scotland, a lot of their customers are coming from the US. Funnily enough, because it's you know visit Scotland really, and, and they're a way to come here and ride bikes. So so they're sort of our first proper sponsor that's come on board. What sort of money is involved in something like this? Yeah, and and um, you know, for a sort of two rider privateer team. Um, you, you're realistically talking total budget, including absolutely everything. And I, I'm talking, you know, motorbikes, tires, um, entry fees, sort of the the whole lot. Uh, we're we're looking at 135,000 euros. Yeah, 100 135,000 euros. We're we're talking about, and and of that, about half of it is cash that you need. That there's no other way to to get help than cash, for example, you know, the fees you have to pay to the organisers is uh, pretty substantial. It's, it's pretty much works out around about 12,000, 13,000 euros per person on the team. So the two riders and two people in the support crew um, and then your airfares and hotels, those sorts of things that, you know, effectively you, you need to pay someone cash for is about half of the money and then the other half is all your sort of um, motorcycling parts and equipment, you know, your bikes, your helmets, your spare parts, your your um, tires and mooses and and all that stuff. And and there's no question, it's a tremendous amount of money. I definitely don't have it sat in my back pocket. Um, but in the grand scheme of motorsport and motor motor racing, it's actually you know relatively economical. It's sort of you know it's a whole season of racing compressed into two weeks is the kind of way I try to look at it <laughs> and you said you, you have to pull this together in six weeks yeah <laughs> that, that's the you say it's so this year most other years it's taken six months but this year it's been compressed a little bit <laughs> you say it's so casual when you say it i keep picturing longer period of time thinking no no, no i know what six weeks is but he says it yeah. like it's two years <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm i'm trying not to panic about it <laughs> 
Well, I don't, I don't want to make you panic more about that. I, I'd be remiss not to talk to you um, about Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor, uh, who you trained for their their Long Way Round series. And again, Charlie Borman with the, his attempt on the Dakar, which I think you've done the other things too. You've done movies and, and different things with Charlie. But let's talk about Long Way Round for just a minute. Um, how did you come about being the official um, off-road trainer for Ewan and Charlie? Ah, there's a complicated question as well. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, um, you know, the natural co- connection became the, the BMW connection after Charlie ripped the KTM poster off the wall. <laughs> that famous scene. <laughs> uh, but but it, did, it did actually start a little bit before that. We, we just, we actually had a, um, a mutual friend. Uh, I didn't know Charlie and Ewan at all, but a, a mutual friend of ours from here in Wales that, uh, that rides enduros happens to be a little bit of a this guy called Julian Broad, who's a bit of a photographer to the stars, and he'd done a lot of work with Ewan, and uh, and he knew that he was uh, uh, planning to do this trip, and and we were out riding with him on on the mountain in Mid Wales one day, and he just said to us, "I, oh, one of the actors I'm working with is planning to do this uh, trip. Are you guys interested in doing some training with him?" And you know, like, yeah, of course, yeah, no problem. Um, and that, that was sort of where the seed was sown, really. And then, and then, um, funnily enough, at that stage, they hadn't actually spoken to BMW, and we kind of said to Julian, "Why, why don't you speak to BM?" And then they did, and you know, all that. Like always, these things seem like they happen overnight, but that that was probably a year between that conversation on a mountain and them actually coming down to try the bikes out for the first time. Um, and then, yeah, they they rode. As, as we all now know in history, they, they rode the BM and the KTM and um, Charlie had his little tanty and ripped the KTM poster off the wall and they, uh, <laughs> they came down here and uh, learned how to ride GSs and uh, the rest is history. So it was great. It was fantastic. It was a great couple of days. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is that all they actually did was, was just our normal two-day level one school. That's all. They just, Charlie and Ewan did the two days. That was all they did before they went left on long way around, um, and it, that was pretty much Ewan's first two days off road ever. And um, and yeah, Charlie had done you know messing around in a field in Ireland as a kid beforehand, but that was pretty much all he'd done as well. You know, um, you know, and that's the great part of their story, I think. Really, is that yeah, anyone can do this stuff. It's just a case of uh, of making it happen. Did you see Charlie and Ewan after their training with you as two guys that would complete their trip without question, like really highly skilled, or did you just see a couple of guys that acquired some basic skills that are you know needed for that sort of adventure? Oh no, totally. They were just a couple of guys that had, yeah just done a, a two two days riding off road. Yeah, just the basic core skills. But yeah, you know, a trip like that is going to turn you into a better rider anyway because you're going to ride for whatever how many hundred days it was in a row um yeah you can't help but get better every day it's hours and hours in the clock and you know with a bit of foundation in there um you know it's a it's a great story and like i said we now you know we've got so many fantastic ones i I don't know if you guys know over there there's a couple called simon and lisa thomas i know they've done quite a lot of talk shows and talks and stuff all around the u.s um, they they got a they're called to ride the world with the number two. I've been like traveling around the world since '03 or something like that. And they were the same. They came and did our two day off road school, and that was it. And they've been traveling the world for whatever it is, eleven years now <laughs> since. 
Yeah, we interviewed them a few weeks back, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit longer than that. I think they did mention that they took your course. Yeah, but it's amazing. Like, So so that's what I mean. I, I sort of was on the impression that Charlie and Ewan did a much longer training with you, training period. Um, but I remember, I think it was when you were doing the race to Dakar um, that Ewan, maybe they had a, some sort of voiceover from Ewan. He said he was blown away. Oh, no, no, it was Long Way Down, where Ewan said he was blown away with Charlie's improvement because he'd, he'd run the Dakar since then. So, so he had done the... The, the initial training with you, but you trained him for the Dakar as well. And yeah. and then he said he was just blown away by the difference in riding. Yeah. yeah. And it was a totally different story with Dakar because, you, you know, that, that year, which was a fantastic year for me, you know, that you talk about the, the sort of dream situation. Then yeah, that year was brilliant because the off-road school in fairness in that, in that time wasn't as big a business as it was now. It was, you, you know, it, it was sort of just uh just supporting me i think i think my wife Lindsay was still working and you, you know we, we we i was doing everything myself then we didn't have a mechanical staff or anything like that so i was sort of servicing the bikes and when they're all ready then we put another school date out and do another school and stuff like that so it was it was a you know not not so busy and then the dakar project came along and and basically you know charlie was down here for i think we started in may to, to prepare, which again was a little bit too short, you know, that, that was part of the problem for Charlie. If we just had, you know, if we, if we'd sort of had, uh, you know, a year or a year and six months instead of seven months for him to train to Dakar, I think it would have been a very different outcome. But, you, you know, in seven months, we did a lot of work. He, he was pretty much down at my place, stayed at my place uh, two or three nights um, every week. You know, well, we, you know, so we rode two or three days every week for that whole period. And, you know, for me, it was fantastic because basically I was getting paid to take Charlie out riding, um, you know, proper off-road hard riding. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> three days a week. It was brilliant. Being like someone's personal trainer, I guess, um, but with a dirt bike. And, and you know, the, of course, he improved dramatically in that time because we, you know, we, we said right from the start, this isn't, you know, this isn't uh, going trail riding. This is Dakar if we're going to be ready. Um, you know, we're going to have to ride hard and you have to ride over your head and, you know, beyond your ability every day for seven months and push and learn and push and learn. And, and, um, and that's what we did. You know, we went out and we, we rode hard and we worked on technique, but we did a lot of just hard riding. Um, and, and that amount of hours, you know, Charlie, one thing I would say, he is a really good learner. You know, he, he, he definitely, He's definitely a guy that has a lot of confidence. He isn't afraid to have a go at something, and he's quite happy to fall off and pick himself up again. He's really good at that stuff. It was just a, you know, a short time to turn someone that's not really done. You know, I've been riding off road for thirty years, so you know, it takes a long time to, to you know, to get those skills and trying to cram them in and cram them in. And of course, he got hurt in that period as well. Which again was, you know, pro probably quite inevitable because if you look at anyone that's sort of become a pro racer, as part of it is you're going to fall off and you're going to take some hits and you know, you're going to have some hopefully small injuries along the way, but they're they're part of the learning process as well because they're sort of part of what t teaches you to push near to the edge of the limit but not go over it. You know, it's a fine line, isn't it? You see it with whatever, MotoGP every week, isn't it? The guys are trying to push close to the edge every week and learn what the edge is without stepping over it. Because as soon as you step over it, you, you race your championship, your series or whatever is finished. 
So, but if you're not close to it, there's someone else who will be closer. So, um, and it's hard to, you know, that, that's that's years and years of experience, isn't it? Trying to cram into a tight time frame. So he, he did really fantastically, but it just wasn't long enough. Well, and races a car, I think, brought out something as well in my mind. Anyway, it was it was motivation, um, the motivation to race. Uh, Charlie had trouble with with keeping himself sort of motivated for it, whereas yeah. that comes naturally for you being a racer. Yeah, no, he did. he did. He did. He did sort of get himself to the point where he wasn't sure that it was what he wanted to do. And like I sort of said earlier with Dakar, if you're not sure that you want to be there, and you're not sure that the end goal is the most important thing in your life at that time, you, you know, you're not going to be at the finish. And, you know, that's when you risk getting hurt, which is what happened to him. And, and I think, you know, that was unfortunately part of the part of the story was he, he sort of thought it was what he wanted, but it wasn't really and you know that comes about a little bit because you know from outside our sport people you know Dakar is the sort of famous off-road race but there's so many other great fantastic events in the lead up to to Dakar that people can go out there and and do first and learn if it's actually something they do want to do you know there's rallies in like the one I've just done in Greece and Morocco and um you know, you've got a couple in Mexico nowadays and there's loads in South America and, you know, Australian Safari. There's there's all these other sort of events all around the world that you can kind of, you know, learn if it's for you. But Charlie never had that opportunity because, of course, it was up in lights. He's going to Dakar. So once he passed that point, it, the pressure wasn't from him internally that that's what I want to do. The pressure sort of turned around and came from the outside in and, and you could see that a little bit on the TV show, couldn't you, that he struggled to, to deal with that at times. And, yeah, I think in, in hindsight that, yeah, it was just it's just one of those things in that there's a crossing point where you've got all the backing. <laughs> uh, like I, you know, I talk to Charlie all the time. He, he, you know, people are always putting on my Facebook that Charlie should go again, and, and he'd love to go again, but almost he'd love to go again without fanfare around him so that he could, you know, make those decisions for himself. But the problem is you can't go again without the fanfare because then you haven't got the money. So it's that sort of double bind, really. Charlie's a great guy. And the other thing that came out of it, you know, out of that year, we spent a lot of time with our both our families together and, you know, became pretty good friends with Charlie and we get on great and we like doing stuff together and, you know, he loves it when he's got the time to come down here and hang out. He's been down on a couple of off-road schools this year just – just to be around and and you know, but he's he's just got crazy. He makes my life look sedentary. He's got a crazy busy life these days, and that's sort of why he won't go racing for some time because he just hasn't got the time. You know. Did you have any idea at all, any sort of inkling when you were when you started doing this this stuff with Charlie and you, and that it was going to be such a, a long lasting and influential really effect on the whole adventure motorcycle industry? And how does it feel to, to be a part of that? Oh, yeah. No, no, no one did. No one did. Like, like I said, when they first came down, that first school they came on, um, I mean, there was no, you know, there was no fanfare or pizzazz. So it was just a couple of guys that were playing in this trip came down and did a school. And, um, yeah, there was, there was nothing about it. And, you know, they, yeah, they were deciding to sort of film it and stuff, but they didn't have any any um, realisation where it was going to go. And, and everyone sort of forgets now because it's become such a big TV thing. But, I, I, you know, I remember when it first came out on the telly here, it was it was on Sky One, you know, which is a, a sort of um, 
I suppose a kind of medium-sized cable TV channel, and there was, I don't know, that first week they had like 20,000 people saw it or something. It was a, you know, it was a small TV show, small niche thing, and then, you know, then it sort of uh, organically grew. And, and you know, the next couple of years, because we, we have on our questionnaires, you know, how did you hear about the off-road school? And in the next couple of years, there was the odd one or two. Um, and then it sort of seemed to hit a critical mass, really, and 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 suddenly went mainstream, and then grew and grew and grew and grew. And as we now know, every everywhere in the world, everyone knows about it, and um, and it's been a massive thing, I think, for for motorcycling everywhere. You know, it, it's just made in a lot of places. You know, it's it's not just motorcyclists that have seen the show or heard about it or know about it. It's real kind of mainstream, public, clean, friendly entertainment non hell's angel motorcycling um and yeah it's been an amazing thing and yeah to sort of get wrapped up in that um has been yeah fantastic <laughs> brilliant <laughs> what can i say <laughs> great things i've uh, been involved with and yeah you couldn't couldn't uh couldn't imagine where it was going to go when they started and then they're the same you know you talk to charlie any day of the week and he's exactly the same he, you know they couldn't imagine where it's gone to and all the stuff he does now you know he's celebrity at motor gp races and the tt and doing talks all over the world and, you know all, all that stuff it's just yeah quite incredible you know ambassador for insurance brands and it's nuts, really. <laughs> but I understand KTM's not so fond of that film. <laughs> it's everyone's instant assumption, isn't it? It will, you know, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? I mean, like BMW is so on top now. I mean, it is the adventure bike. Everything else is defined by it. The R twelve hundred GS, especially. You know, you just got to picture the guy sitting in the background, the KTM office, smacking himself in the forehead, thinking, "Damn." Yeah, but you know, and and of course, BM uh, out of everyone has done fantastically out of it. There's no doubt about that. And and I think you know, on the adventure bike side of things, they have got the best products and the best bikes. And you know, again, I'm really fortunate that you know, by luck, good fortune, chance, whatever, um, when we started this up, you know, we picked the right brand. There's no doubt about it. They're the, they're the best company to be involved with, and it's really nice when you're working on the off-road school and, and talking to customers and students and you can sort of, you know, you can absolutely stand there and say, if you want the best adventure bike, that is it, go and get one. Um, but, but equally, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm, a, I'm an enduro rider and an off-road guy as well and KTM hasn't done so badly in the same window of time and I think when you're in adventure bike world, you don't see that but when you're in both worlds like I am, um, I see it a little bit differently. You know, for, first of all, KTM had great publicity out of that poster pulling scene. <laughs> There's a lot of people mm -hmm. that have never heard the KTM brand before that moment. Right. Uh, a lot of road bike riders. And the whole it, the whole adventure industry. Yeah. I mean, it pumped up the whole industry. I mean, that's why everybody's putting out the big adventure bikes that weren't available before, including KTM. So, I mean, yeah, I know. There's, there's huge spin-off that, I mean, everyone's done well from it. And, and also, you know, KTM, KTM and... and KTM is in a little bit of a different place to BMW because, you know, BMW's world is touring and adventure. You know, that's their mainstay and that's what they're really, really good at. Whereas KTM's hardcore world, you know, the core of their business is enduro and motocross. And in that world, you know, they, they spend their marketing money on race teams, you know, and they, they, they've 
won countless world championships in the same window. You know, they, they've, they've, um, they've won both classes in world motocross this season. They've won two out of the three classes in world enduro this season. You know, they're, they're totally dominant in their marketplace. And in the, the same time period, you know, in the last 10 years, since 04 to, to now, long way around to now, you know, KTM has, in, in terms of actual volume sales, they've dramatically outgrown BMW, you know. So you, you kind of got to put that in, you know, from a business perspective, from KTM's perspective, they, they've made good decisions. You know, they, their, their brand is a race brand and that's what they focused on and that's what they've, you know, in that 10 years, they've, they've totally dominated that market. And, um, you know, BMW doesn't inhabit that market. They, they concentrate on adventure bikes and touring bikes. And, you know, that's where they they do the best job because that's what they're focused on. So, you know, there's a little bit of perspective anyway. How do listeners find out more about Simon Pavey? Oh, that's easy. We've got the internet easy, <laughs> um, with the For the off-road school, we've got offroadskills.com. And uh, all our programs are set on there and how to book and, you know, you can book online or you can pick up the phone really easily. And, uh, and then um, for all the racing stuff, I've got simonpavey.com and everything about this year's Dakar effort will, will go up through there. And, you know, we're on Facebook, of course, Simon Pavey and Off-Road Skills, both on Facebook. Um, and, uh, yeah, all our sort of how to get involved in, in Dakar this year for myself and Llewellyn uh, is all sort of going live. We've got a whole sort of package of sort of fan supporter stuff that people can key into if they're excited for it as well. You can subscribe to get newsletters during the rally and all that sort of stuff as well, all on simonpavey.com. So, yeah, that's the easiest way, really, to find us. And you're also looking for more sponsors for your thing coming up. So if you're a, a sponsor out there, you're looking to sponsor, get your name in lights, um, getting involved with something like this, they can contact you for that too, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and all the basic uh, basic introductory information about how to sponsor is up, up on simonpavey.com. Um, but, of course, there's a link to email there and we can, yeah, we can speak on the phone or, or, and or by our email, you know, to... Work out the nitty-gritty nitty details if, uh, yeah, someone's excited to get involved. Come and ride motorbikes. That's all I've got to say. Let's get out there and do it. You know, it's the same old, uh, same old message. Just, um, yeah, make a plan and make it happen. Come and do an off-road school and then open the world. Of course, you can't have Simon Pavey on Adventure Rider Radio and not ask for some off-road riding tips. If you were limited to just a short answer for the following riding conditions, um, what would it be? Mud, rocks, sand, water. <laughs> what, for all of them? <laughs> yeah. all just, uh, you're going to do one and you're going to go to the next one. So mud, rock, sand, and then while, while water crossing. Mud is absolutely being smooth. You know, everything I've said, you just have to amplify it. Just being smooth, really smooth. Um, rocks is probably the biggest thing there is picking your line and being confident. Wheels, uh, one of my other instructors has a great saying, wheels are round, they roll over things. Let the wheels roll. You know, and in rocks, that's really important. you just got to let the wheels roll over them, and then it works. Look ahead and let the wheels roll. Um, what was your next thing? Sand. 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 Full gas. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> there is only one solution. Open the throttle. Um, and water crossing. And water crossings is... Is, is yeah take care really take care it, oh, you know, it's a, i will ex, 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 uh, expand that a little bit because 
we, we see it all the time with people new to off-road. You know, they'll ride really cautiously till they get to a deep puddle and then suddenly they go fast. When you can't see what's under the water, you have to go slow and take care. It's so easy to, to um, drown, a, drown a bike or drown a port person in water. It's really respect it and take care. Yeah. So sand's the place for opening the throttle and the water's the place to roll it off. Makes sense. Yeah. It's the best thing about riding in the sand. You know, everybody's daunted by it, but um, uh, the sand riding is the, no question the most difficult riding in the world, but it's absolutely the most enjoyable riding in the world because when, when you get it and when it's working, it's so much fun because it's about riding with the throttle open. And I think most of us that ride motorbikes, we like to turn the throttle and then you can. <laughs> It's funny because I think I read an article not long ago from Cycle World, I think it was Cycle World magazine, and somebody was recommending that you actually don't go fast. They were saying that um, that I know you read everywhere that you get on the on the gas, but there's the, this person in particular was saying that their analogy was the faster you go, the faster you crash, or the harder you crash. No, I didn't say go fast. I said go with the throttle open. It's a very, very no. different thing. Yeah, because what happens, and I, I kind of agree, is you know when you go too fast you get to the point where you chicken out and shut the throttle and then you crash because you have mm -hmm. to always have the throttle open when you're going through sand so it doesn't mean go into it flat out in top gear it means actually the opposite you know you start off slow in sand but you have to always drive you know if you're going to slow down you have to slow down with the bike dead straight dead upright and slow down gently and you do that sometimes in order to say turn a corner or um, you know, to, to start to go downhill to set yourself up to be able to drive through the sand again because whenever you're moving through the sand, you, you need the back wheel driving so that it's trying to keep the front wheel light. Every time you chop the throttle a little bit, you throw weight onto the front wheel, that's when the front wheel tucks and that's when you fall over. So it's absolutely true. I'm not talking about going fast. I'm talking about going with the throttle open. wraps up this episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We hope you enjoyed this uh, talk with Simon Pavey because there's certainly lots to learn in there. Maybe you want to rewind it and listen again. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike, though. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Drop by iTunes and give us a rating, or drop by our website and send us a comment. Tell us what you like, tell us what you'd like to hear. Hi, it's Simon Pavey here calling to you from uh, sunny Wales and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Ryan Pyle. Hi, this is Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. My name's Graham Field. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. This is Dave Barr. Hey, this is Renee Cormier. This is Simon Thomas. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas. This is Harold Olaf Cecil. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. This is Richard Dreams. This is Dr. Gregory Frazier. My name is Austin Vince. Hi, I'm Jason Spafford. I'm Lisa Morris. Hi, it's Simon Pavey. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.